This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back, back, back to do more film, film, film. What's going on, Danielle? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you this week? I'm just fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing to report? Nope. Don't In have the any. In mean streets uh, of Florida. <laughs> In those mean streets of Florida, there's nothing going on as per usual. How's it going up there? What's up? Can we get a Chauncey update? What's up? Yeah. So as listeners know, I bought my first house and moved back to New York and I'm living in my hometown on a tiny farm uh, and just wandering around this house like a ghost. It is great. Uh, My stuff got here yesterday, which is why I'm sitting in my crazy chair um, because it is chaos behind me. It is chaos behind me. Um, But all my stuff got here in one piece. And uh, what I really love is on the way here, the movers uh, were packing. They packed for me this time. Mm-hmm. Everyone keeps asking, like, whenever they know I, that I lived in Alaska, they're like, oh, that move must have been miserable. And I'm like, it was the easiest move of my life because I sold everything I owned. Yeah. I bought a car and I drove to Alaska. This, I was taking furniture. I was taking my cat. Like, it was hard <laughs> to do. Um, but every every single aspect of the movers the moving company they made fun of me so when they were packing me <laughs> when they were packing me in la <laughs> oh no yeah when they were packing me in la they're like you have more books in this apartment than in the last three houses we've packed combined that's a bad thing apparently and i was like sorry and they kept pulling books off the shelf and being like have you read this one and i was like yes <laughs> have you read this one yes okay we're we gonna we're we gonna do a zach morris timeout for a moment <laughs> Are they allowed to be like going over your shit and being like, what's this? What's going on? Why am I picking this up and commenting on it? What if this is from some dead person? What if this is a book that meant like that seems. I know they picked up my grandpa's ashes. You should at least be writing a letter to the company. No, what I did instead was tip them graciously and thank them for coming to my house and pack all my shit. I guess. (laughs) But they were going in. And then when I got here, the movers yesterday were like, you live here by yourself. And I'm like, I don't want to tell you that because what if you come back to murder me? But yes, I live here by myself right now. My grandma will be moving in with me. That's the whole reason I bought this fucking house. Mm -hmm. And they kept looking around and being like, not bad, not bad. But then the cool thing about the movers in New York is that uh, they brought their New York flavor. So that at one point they unwrapped one of my shelving units and he's like, uh, where do you want this to go? This nice one. And I'm like, oh, not the piece of shit. Put the nice shit upstairs. And so the whole day was just like nicer piece of shit. We just had a language going by the end of the day. And it was great. Um, but yeah, everything's cool. Chauncey, my gopher, has been uh, out in the yard enjoying the freshly cut grass. My, I met my landscaper today. 
and found out within three seconds about his divorce and his whole life. He's wonderful. Um, it's been a little less scary. I keep looking around corners, but it's been a little less scary. Uh, I definitely didn't call my brother crying this week, but he came over yeah. anyway. He came over on Saturday and he brought like a case of beer and three friends. And I'm like, what are you doing here? This is not the hangout spot. We're not 18. What are you doing? I'm an adult woman with a house. And he's like, I'm just coming to make sure you're okay. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're coming to get away from your wives. Yo, if your brother wants to bring me a six pack, I will hang out with that dude anytime. He's the best dude, right? Oh, I love that guy. I'm really happy that we're. Well, I, I also have to ask, because this has actually been stressing me the fuck out since you mentioned it. So did that bird escape? Dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank God. It's the one thing I made them do. I'm like, I don't need you to do anything. Just relax. Hang out. I have no chairs. I have nothing to offer you, but come here and get drunk. Fine. Um, but you have to go out in that garage and make sure that bird or that bat or whatever the hell that thing is, is out of there. <laughs> And they did. That bird was named scientifically after Eight Mile. We have to make sure it leaves this garage. The golden Mackay Pfeiffer is, has left the building. <laughs> Thank God. I was really stressed the fuck out about that. Me like, too, because I, like, I didn't know if it was a bird or a bat. And my garbage is out there. Mm-hmm. And the doors to the garage are barn doors, but it's like, you know, sealed. And then I had to double check. I went out today and double check because I had to check that the, um, the door to the silo was closed. And I actually talked to the town already because I'm, I'm turning the silo into my office. And I'm like, can I do that? Can I get a permit for this? And they were like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> this is the country. This is the country. You can ban dancing. You really could ban dancing. I know you joked about that the last time, but you you got these people in your pocket now. You can ban dancing. But loose and fancy free. I'm like, guess what, motherfuckers? I haven't been here since I was 17, but I'm back and nobody can dance. <laughs> And I'm turning every building into my office and you're just going to deal with it. You can Um, crump. You can crump. You cannot dance. (laughs) And don't you dare have professional dancers holding plastic cups because we don't like that shit. As we know, crumping is the side effect of dancing being banned. Once dancing (laughs) is banned, you instantly know how to crump. According to Footloose 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, But the other cool thing is I went. uh, So, you know, I'm turning one of the, the back acres into an archery range. And yeah. I went down the road to one of my neighbors, one of the other farms and, and bought some hay. So they're going to deliver some hay bales tomorrow. Um, but I went to the sports shop and got myself a new bow. That was my gift to myself for moving in. And I actually got two. <laughs> I got a recurve bow uh, and a compound bow. So recurve is Legolas from you know, Lord of the Rings. Yes. And the compound bow is what Burt Reynolds used in Deliverance. I was going to ask. Because that's the only thing I know about archery is deliverance. And you know he should not have been using that to catch fish. It's a little intense to fish with. Do you remember that part where John Voight puts that glove on and it's like, it's a glove that is missing like 70% of the glove? Is that right? That is actually useful uh, for the recurve bow because the way that it snaps back, it'll like get you on your wrist every time. Uh, so that one is useful. And a lot of people have the uh, the tough cuff, like they've got that big leather thing for the same reason. But I just get bruised. I don't give a shit. Wait a minute. <laughs> so. the, t- the tough cuff. Yeah. All right. It's purposeful. Is, is, that why, is that why he was wearing a tough cuff? In the, I think in that's the movie? why he was wearing a tough, but he's he was shooting with the opposite arm. So I think he was literally wearing it as like a tough guy cuff. What about a rubber vest? You need to calm down. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not wearing a rubber vest to shoot arrows. Shit is ornamental and gorgeous. All right. If it has a pop collar, I'll entertain it. Now I'm just obsessed with you being an archer. Come, come visit. I mean, you're going to come visit. You're going to see it in action. Um, mm-hmm. the, it has been raining for the last few days. So the creek, I have a creek on my property. Um, it's really nice and, and full. If there are any fish in there, I'm going to shoot the fuck out of them. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I can do that now. I keep, I'm reluctant to call Chauncey my gopher. I'm reluctant to call my pond my pond. Like, I just cannot get used to the fact that I own space, that I own like a chunk of the earth. Um, it was never supposed to happen. And here I am. But I'm, I'm into it. I'll use it. I'm going to spend the summer. You know, we're taking a couple of weeks off. And after all this book stuff is done, then I'm taking some time off this summer and I'm just going to kayak and drink some beers. Here's the other thing I've noticed, though, about being home. I got to mm. say, mm. and I don't know if it's because I just left the loneliest place I've ever lived in my life in Los Angeles. Um, I was alone for four years in L.A. All I did was work. I didn't have any friends. I didn't date. I didn't do anything. When I tell you that I came back here, when I went to Lowe's to buy the washer and dryer, dishwasher, all that shit, by the time I left that place, I had three marriage proposals. Those guys could knock it over because, you know, I like to supermarket sweep it. Yeah. I went to Target. Just fucking give me. Every, I need this. I need, Sure. Give me whatever. Same thing at Lowe's. I went in prepared. I did my research and I'm like, I want this, this and this. And I'm like, oh, well, that color's out of stock. Great. No problem. What about this, this and this? And while they were looking it up, I asked about where their belt sanders were. I'm like, can you just throw me in the belt sanders? And he's like, what do you know about belt sanders? That's love language, baby. That's a love language. <laughs> like, I know that I need one for the yep. project that I'm working on in my house. And he was like, I'm going to get married. I'm like, <laughs> I don't. I don't, sir. I don't. Hot commodity in New York. L.A., I was a total loser. New York, I'm back, baby. I'm making out with everyone this summer. Landscaper, Lowe's, I don't give a fuck. Everyone's getting made out with. You, it's going to be like the Prince of Tides. I can already see this. (laughs) It's going to be you and this Lowe's employee and a belt sander with the sheets up to your chest, smoking a cigarette in your lake house like. This is this is love. This is our torrid affair. It's, it's like you've seen me in action, dude. <laughs> I'm excited, though. I feel very much like myself here. That's what's important. I feel like yeah, I'm meeting people. Sure. I'm chatting. I just feel and it makes sense because this is the place that 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 raised me, the place that done raised me. Love it. Like, like I said, it's it seems charming as hell. I've watched Nobody's Fool. So I feel like I have a little bit of information about what this could be. So. This is exciting. I can't wait to visit. I can't wait to go to a home improvement store and get numbers. I'm excited. <laughs> it's going to happen. Look, my brother, I know that I know that he's I, I will never disparage my sister-in-law. Um, my brother's got friends, though. Mm-hmm. He's not available, but he's got friends. They're all very cute. Cool. Cool. I can't do anything with them because I've known them since they were five. <laughs> But knock yourself out. Come up and hang out. But it's it's cool. I've actually like I'm really I'm settling in. I love it. I'm settling in. Speaking of settling in, mm. you want to settle into this mailbag? Yes, we have a mailbag. Did I do it? Did I do a segue? S- sort of. It was. We're good. not. No, we're not known for that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but we got a good one. Yeah, we do. Okay, we got a mailbag from a listener named Stephanie. 
And Stephanie writes, hello, ladies. So I've watched a lot of movies lately that are inspired by real life events like Hustlers, Bad Education and Just Mercy. But they all seem like pretty straightforward stories that are written as they actually happened. I can't imagine ever telling my own story without making up names and making up practically everything else except for what happened to me. I wonder if you know of any movies that approach it that way, where they are taking a true story and fictionalizing everything around it. So I ask you, what's a great fictional movie that's based on a real life experience? Thanks, Stephanie. Mm. That is a great question, Stephanie. Thank you for writing in. I'm sure there are several, but we had to bring in the big guns for this. We had to call on screenwriter, producer, Bananas podcast co-host, the person who wrote the movie Ma, It's Only Exactly Right's little Scotty Landis. Oh, hello. Thank <laughs> you for having me on your wonderful podcast. I'm a huge fan. Thanks for coming Thank on this podcast. We were on Bananas a while yes. back. And, um, you know, we were we had an amazing time, by the way, even though I was t- coming off of my second covid shot and I felt I had a poor performance. But we'll I have you back. It. We'll have you back together. We'll have you back individually. <gasps> Whatever you want. Danielle was listening to episodes. You don't laugh too much. Laugh more. Aww. I encourage you to laugh more. Everybody Thanks. on the episode of Bananas you were on was like the four of you laughing at the same time was great <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> so don't hold back. A cacophony of sound like we've never heard before. That's right. And Millie, say simply as much as you want. Say simply nonstop. I'm simply a gracious guest. I simply thank you for that. (laughs) Well, we called you in because obviously you have some expertise in the subject matter. Sure. Um, And do you want to tell everybody, you know, sort of maybe the story of Ma and like how you came into doing that story? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I wrote this horror movie called Ma that's starring Octavia Spencer. It came out a couple years ago yesterday, actually. Ooh, and, happy um, anniversary. I didn't realize. Thank you. I didn't know. I got a, I got some tweets. Thank, the internet lets you know. Um, <laughs> they do. You can't hide from anything these days. The, yeah. The internet's that person in high school that knows your anniversaries for like dating for a month. And you're like, how did you? I didn't even know that. <laughs> I won't name names. But there were a couple. Um, Yeah. So Ma was um, based on really two nights. I grew up in a a suburban town in Maryland and um, there were two parties. And basically the the idea of Ma, without spoiling it too much, is is there is a woman in town named Sue Ann who has pretty much been on the outside her entire life. Uh, I wanted to write a type of misery for popularity. I thought that nobody was really talking about popularity as a vice and a, a way that you can lock your characters into one location. That's a great elevator pitch. I'm so bad at those. That's great. It was... I wrote the script before pitching it. So I actually wrote it because I was known as a comedy writer and... Even my agents were like, dude, like you're known as a workaholics guy. Do that. And I was like, no, but I prefer watching horror movies. So Ma is based on these two nights. One was um, a few friends from high school were playing Hey Mister, where they were hanging outside this liquor store called One Stop. And they were just asking anybody to go by to buy them beer. And this guy did. And I don't remember his name because I only really I went to this party and my friends called on the landline like we used to do. And said, there's a party at this guy's house and everybody's going. So we went, I went with my best friend, Andre, 
We go, we walk around this house. It was bad. Like one <laughs> note that I would have given to the movie Ma is Sue Ann's house is way nicer than I intended it to be. <laughs> <laughs> when you it say bad, do you mean like things hanging awful. down or just dirt or grime or great question it was a one-story vinyl-sided house with this long stone driveway and we walked around the back cinder block wall on the back of the house and a door a no door just an open door area <laughs> onto dirt floor al fresco i'm out of there um, i'm out of there <laughs> I was 15, Andre drove, and uh, Eminem's first album had come out, so that's blasting at full volume on uh, a stereo, and a bunch of white guys from my soccer team are rapping Eminem in my face as soon as I step in. So I entered hell. Um, You can see why this is a horror movie and not a comedy. And smoke everywhere and earlier in the night uh the a girl that i dated in high school my girlfriend at the time was like oh i'm going to danielle's i'm not i'm not going to that party and then she was there talking to the guy that bought the beer who was felt like he was 35 in actuality he was probably 24 but i was 15 so he seemed like an older guy and he's Mm -hmm. wearing he was he was just looked old for the room and they were smoking cigarettes together. And my first fear was that he was going, that he liked my girlfriend, that he saw me, that she was going to say something and that he was going to beat me up. That like a grown man was going to beat me up in front of everybody I knew. Oh, oh reasonable. I mean, this is a guy that buys alcohol and lets strange kids party in his basement and flirts with 14 or 15 year old women. So why wouldn't he beat one of them up? Why? Yeah. What if he pulled out a gun? What if he pulled out a knife? What if he locked the door and killed us all? Like it was, it was a true fear. And I like said, Hey to everybody like made eye contact with that girl. She was like, Oh shit. Like she got busted in a lie. Yeah. And so I just left. I was like, Andre, you want to go? He's like, yeah. So we left. Uh, I combined that fear, that innate fear of um, being singled out, being in somebody's basement, an older person around younger people mm-hmm. with another woman uh in town a friend of mine had an aunt who was wealthy or at least well to do who had a really nice house with a really nice finished basement and when her husband who's i think a businessman or traveling for his work would go out of town she would let us hang out or party in her basement and at first it was like four or five of us which is very like ma that first time in their basement is very similar experience yeah yeah. but the second time she let it word spread and like 50 kids showed up like the bad kids showed up. I, thankfully I was cool with both sides of like the goody two shoes and the druggies. So I was, I spl- I was like blade. I was like moving between the, the bad <laughs> the detention kids and the valedictorians. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a couple hooking up in the bathroom, a guy I knew and a girl I knew and I had to go and so we weren't allowed upstairs, like because valuables, not because she had a Munchausen by proxy daughter. Up yes. Spoiler. 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 It's okay. At this point, two years, you either saw it or you didn't. And uh, that's how that's how Millie feels too. They love spoilers, these listeners. So Ugh. our listeners love to tell the whole story. I'll yeah. say no more. But I was allowed upstairs. So <laughs> packed party. Kids are making out under like fitted sheets on the floor. People are shooting pool. She's like bartending. She's telling all the girls they have cute butts. She's telling all the boys, like, hey, call me when you're 18. Like creepy aunt. Wow. And so I <laughs> oh, went outside. Shit. It was snowing. Uh it was like not snowing hard, but it was snowing because I had to pee. So I walk out to the tree line uh, behind their yard and I'm peeing against a tree and I turn around and she's standing in the sliding glass door staring at me like furious. Like 30 minutes earlier, she's telling me to call her when I'm 18. 
And now she's looking at me like I need to die. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I'm sorry, there are people in the bathroom. And she's like, you're not allowed back in. And everyone's like, what happened? What happened? I was like, I just peed out back. She's like, if my husband sees pee in the snow, like I get in trouble and you just did this. And meanwhile, I mean, kids are like going insane inside of her house. <laughs> so I combined that woman and those parties, which are more than two with that weirdo guy that was like a one-off in his basement. And I was like, this has to have happened in every town. And I'm going to pull my favorite parts and then add some, some stuff. So that's how Ma came together. That's wow. fantastic. I, have, I did not go to a single party in high school. I'm riveted. Oh, I went to too many and they went insane. And we had just, we had a real mix of the haves and the have nots. We had a little bit of a mix of everybody. We had, we had a couple famous parents who would leave town and like had big houses where we would throw parties that if you saw it, you would think it was out of a movie. But at the same time, you looked around and you were like, some of these people are going to try to keep this going forever. I'm out of here. So I just <laughs> graduated and went to school in another state. I was like, you guys can have this. So you're saying there are probably still people partying in that dirt basement. Dead or partying. Or dead in the basement. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love it, too. It's so funny because I, you know, just to, not to freak you out, Scotty, but Danielle oh and I have seen Ma many, many times. Well, thanks. Uh, yes. We were excited to find out that you were... Uh, Within access of us to of course. Uh, to to project all of our feelings about Ma, but the the, the thing that I love about it, and because this is the fear for me, is the <laughs> idea that there is an older person who is basically trying to like live vicariously through these like mm -hmm. teenagers and yes. is kind of showing up down. Like it's one thing to be like, here's access to my basement and I all just hang out and I'll see you when I see you just lock the yes. door. But the fact that she's like in the mix and she's like dancing and pouring jello shots and shit that to me, cause now, cause That's at the, the time, <laughs> yes, at the time I got to say, I don't, I don't even think I would have thought that person was cool then. And right. I certainly now am like working, you know, every day to not be that person ever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, but for you, you, I think it seems like you sense that that person was like, you, you felt a weirdness there. I did feel weirdness there. And I felt like I was the only one feeling the weirdness, yes. which is why right. I made the main character Maggie. I, I've always felt that way. I think it's why I became a writer. I think it's why I'm able to write for different actors and genre. Like I'm a, I can stretch pretty good in a few different directions is because I sometimes I feel like I feel the things that nobody else is feeling. And for a writer, that's a really good way to be because when you write it, you actually find out that tons of people have felt that way, but they didn't know how to express it. And I for sure felt uncomfortable with the first guy. And then seeing, I, I never into, and the reason I decided to write Ma when I, in my thirties, uh, you know, 20 years after this thing happened is because it stuck with me. And then I started to see with the rise of cell phones, parents who had way too much to do with their kids' lives, like, yeah. like not just texting your kids or calling kids, but FaceTime kids every single day, tracking your kids, being on their apps, commenting on their photos, knowing. And it's like that started to get really scary to me. So I was like, I, I don't think popularity with teenagers is something any adult should ever aspire to or welcome or even accept. Like they just like hanging out with me. You should distance yourself. I liked that. I think that part of it too, I was wondering if, and this is something I would never ask another writer, 
I will not Anything. make you answer because it's just one of the most complicatedly annoying questions. You come up with ideas and you write them. That is the craft. Yes. Um, but I did enjoy that Maggie's mom was not present for a real reason. You yes. know, she was working and doing her thing. It wasn't neglect. It wasn't, you know, just kind of this benign, I don't know, she's just a kid kind of Absolutely. attitude. That was really important, I think, to the fear as well, because you're like, this isn't a kid who's going off the rails for no reason. She's just kind of free to explore. And yeah. she is exploring. And I like that. Thank you. That was important to me, too. I didn't want to make um, it was not against parents or anything. I, I thought that the story should be about a daughter and a mother reuniting. And I thought that it was going to happen because the daughter was going to learn that popularity doesn't matter. It was basically a 15 or 16 year old versus a 40 year old for the same friend group. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, but I wanted to make it about two, a single mom, recently divorced. I don't think it's really talked about in the, oh, that scene got cut. There's a scene in the movie where the <laughs> a, a, Maggie and Andy, the love interest, the teenage love interest, um, he's like, you know, what's your story basically? And she was from San Diego and her dad had been cheating on her mom and her dad wasn't like abusive or anything bad, but the mom was like, screw this. And they go back to their hometown. She never really had friends there, Maggie. So the mom taking this cocktail waitressing job in the first draft of the script, it was for like an Under Armour type of company where she was going to be working corporate hours really late in sales. But we shot at Mississippi and it just wasn't going to work that way. But yes, I wanted no a mom that was doing a good job. It wasn't the mom's <laughs> yeah. fault, but it was the seduction of popularity and how far people are willing to go. And anybody, I'm sure you have a lot of Murderino listeners too, just like we do on Bananas. But there, there are a lot of true crime cases where somebody just wanted to be cool or fit in or be with the hotter person. And like the lengths people will go to to not lose that cheerleader girlfriend that they always wanted or that drinking buddy that's a little cooler makes millions of dollars like people will go to extremes to not be on the outside that is terrifying and right? truly again like these levels of terror in this film which is what i really appreciated about it um and to answer stephanie's question yes it's possible that people can fictionalize moments but they're not oh, usually yeah. so um you know so objectively tangible Mm -hmm. And I really like that. I just I just really liked this this notion that for me, my favorite kind of horror is psychological horror. I yes. grew up with someone who likes gore. So I ran the other way and I like a psychological terror. And I think that when you're fictionalizing real moments that comes through so much more clearly and so loudly in such a great way, uh, because like you said, everyone has felt something like that at some point in their life. Right. The trick for horror writing or thriller writing is the hero is can't go anywhere else. There comes a point where they can't go anywhere else. And I knew that if my, especially when you're a teenager and you're just, your hormones are raging and your first kiss or your first whatever, whenever that comes, it's just so, it means so much that the that I could get a hero to keep going into the kill zone basically by attaching her emotionally to that friend group and that boyfriend. And so that, that was, I once that came in a flash. And as soon as it came in a flash, I was sitting in a hotel lobby in new Orleans with two friends getting ready to go on a flight. And somebody said something that instantly I wrote down in my phone, the entire plot of Ma and two paragraphs and sent it to my agent. She's like, this could be cool. And, but, it, <laughs> but it was those two memories came back. And then the idea that, 
if your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, your partner was somewhere without you, would you go one more time, even if you were scared? And you, you probably would. Yeah. Most of us probably would. 100%. Well, I, I appreciate it just coming from like a horror movie fan um, perspective. I, I love that it was sort of like a new entry into, I don't know if you've heard the term psycho bitty. Um, no. So it's it's essentially a little micro genre. We, we've talked about it I many like it. times on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, where um, an, an usually middle aged woman um, is like the center of the horror for a horror yes. film. And it largely um, is, you know, that deals with this idea of like trapping relatives and like trapping people and i mean there's a grand tradition of it in the 60s and 70s and then uh, the the thing that i was so excited about when i when i heard that this movie was coming out was that it was going to be like another uh, a back to form baby like we're coming back to the psycho bitty and i love it um me too yeah and i and and to me like i i love that there is an actual story behind it. It, it it's like a true life thing but it's also like working on this like genre level it's great. It's a great movie. Oh, and thanks. That means a lot. It, yeah. it, it, you know, it did. They really pushed it really hard, which is cool. And you could tell if they like your movie or not by when they release it. So when they said it was going to be a Memorial Day weekend release, I was like, oh, they think this is going to do great. And then the main, I don't ever read reviews ever, literally never. And uh, I just never, even for TV stuff, I stay out of yeah. it. Um, it was cool because it's lived two years later. It's a, it's so many memes. So many people are talking about Ma's basement. So many people are saying, don't make you drink alone. Like it became a cult movie, which you can never plan, but it was a combination of having a director who never directs in the genre ever, Tate mm-hmm. Taylor. Yeah. And then a script that was a really brutal script, but because I was a comedy writer, I was going to make the teenagers sound like teenagers. I hate when adults write teenagers to be too smart or something like yeah. just let them be kids. Yeah, but some and then Octavia being Octavia and also Diana playing Maggie is great. I thought she was great in that movie. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I love all the kids uh, and the cast. Luke Evans is scary as hell. Missy Pyle is cool. Yeah. Like, and as a writer, I have zero to say about that. Besides having a phone call with Octavia when she said she wanted to do the part. And then Alison Janney called and says she wanted to die because she had never been killed in a movie before. Sweet. We so we her. added a death thing for her. Alison Janney gets a a lot of love on this podcast. Yes. Oh, understandably. <laughs> yep. Um, it was a weird combination of things and then young people like it. But I think they like it because people, young people know that there are events that can happen that will draw you in that you know you shouldn't be doing. And if there's one wacky adult, if there's one middle-aged biddy in there, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're in deep shit. You're so it's stuck around, which is, it's a true miracle. And uh, I'm very happy. It, it's so hard to get anything made. So I like it. I, I, I've only seen it one time. <laughs> I've only How seen it once. How dare you? We've seen it I, enough for you then. Yeah, Thank we, you. We've covered the bases 100%. Yeah. I remember vividly, we were at the Arclight, Millie and I, and we ra- rounded the corner to go up the steps to see the movie. And we saw the poster. And without poster. even without even another word, I said, we both said, we're seeing that. And we mm. did. It was great. We love yeah. this movie, but I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. I don't watch a lot of new horror, and I think a right. lot of it yeah. is like what you said was that sometimes with new horror, like the kids in the movie are like too, they're yeah, they're too smart. They're too like trying to be funny. There's always like trying. I right. think they just try too hard to be like, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Funny or trying it's to like get the one liner. It's in the there. Juno effect where yes. you're like, yes. how many Junos exist? One per state, and it's like fun yeah. movie, even, but even. you can't have five Junos. Like what? What's going on? But then on the flip side, I watch Euphoria, and it makes me want to crawl in a hole. Like if this yeah. is what children are actually like, yes. I am yes. terrified in a whole <laughs> different way. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah. The kids in Ma are great. They're the perfect amount of scared and hysterical and funny and they sound like actual kids yeah it's it's an amazing movie and i'm glad that stephanie wrote in and gave us something that you could answer because oh honestly it's it's i think it is like and i'm not a writer so i don't really know what the, it's like to you know come up with a script that's my own life right and then it kind of goes through the machine a little bit um but it sounds like you like the movie and you know I, we love it. We think it's great. So congrats. I think it's fun. I People liked going to it. That was yeah. the bet. People loved the movie experience of because people were laughing. They were cheering. They were screaming. Like a lot of my buddies that went the opening weekend were like, Scotty, I've never been to a movie where people were having more fun. It felt like a roller coaster. And yeah. that meant that meant more to me than anything. And it's just a thrill. I really never expected to get a movie made. Like that was one of my goals when I was a young person. And the fact that I even got one in theaters now, especially with everything streaming, it's been a tremendous, like everything else, just a pleasant surprise. So I'm thrilled that you enjoy it. And I, I hope it ages in a way that you watch it. Like you just put it on when you want to have a good time. That would be huge. That's the story of my pandemic. I was like, I'm not having fun today. Boop. <laughs> I'm yeah. watching Ma. I'm watching it. I'm watching all of these movies. This yep. it's important. But thank you so much. I Pleasure's you're writing mine. more things. You're writing more movies. You're putting more yes. things out in the world. Do you want to promote anything? I have a new movie getting shot right now called The Machine. It's a big action comedy like The Hangover. Um, Burt Kreischer, who's a stand-up comedian, it's his story of The Machine. Uh, I wrote that last April during the pandemic, but they're shooting it already. So hopefully that'll be out this fall. Um, The biggest casting for that is Mark Hamill, I think, is playing Burt's dad. All right, Mary the lead. Pretty good. I think you heard me say I never went to parties in high school. It's because I was a fucking nerd. And Mark (laughs) Hamill... I'm 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 dying about this news. I don't know if I can handle this. Nerds are cool. Nerds rule the world now. So it was just waiting for your time. Al, Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> is just Al Yankovic now. He's just a he regular is. guy. He's just he's Al weird little, anymore. He's just got a middle part. <laughs> <laughs> he's not even weird anymore. Yeah. That is tremendous casting. And Burt Kreischer talked about that. That's like part of his stand-up. I believe yeah, right? his biggest yeah. special and everything is the story of the machine. So they legendary awesome. made it, which is cool. And they said, do you know this story? I said, yes. And then I pitched a legendary and then I pitched a Burt and they liked my take and they attached a director, Peter Tensio, who's the key and peel guy. And, uh, so I'm not on set for many reasons probably, but, uh, they're shooting it. So that should be out this year within a year. And then I have a new thriller, uh, with Jack Quaid from the boys that I wrote for him. And it's more in the Ma vein where it's more sort of taking something that I've been thinking about for a long time and turned it into a new emotional thriller. So hopefully that'll mm. be out this time next year. Hopefully Scotty, you're killing it. Love it. This is great. We love to hear it. I'm trying to. <laughs> it's fun. But yeah, other than that, I just stay busy and I just write anything they send me and um, it's fun. It's good. 
Yeah. I appreciate that you too, the way you talk about movies, you actually love movies. Um, a lot of critics, which I know is not what y'all two are doing, but a lot of them seem to hate movies. And I really, truly enjoy that. Even the dark movies, I was listening to the Deliverance Stand By Me episode. I was listening to the Rear Window episodes. Like you guys love movies and I love, love that. Them. So oh, big thanks. fan. Thanks, Man. Scotty. The best. I'm not the even going to rank the banana boys. You're both the best. I'm number two for a reason. I'm banana ah. boy number two for a reason. You're banana um, boy number one on I Saw What You Did, and Kurt can just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's the best. Come back Aww. anytime. We absolutely thank you oh for answering God. this question. Yes. Stephanie, go watch Ma immediately. Yes, Stephanie, go watch it 5,000 times. But <laughs> no, thank you. The honor is mine. And anytime, anytime I can help, I'd be glad to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on our show, Scotty Landis. That guy's the best. Bananas on Exactly Right Media. <laughs> the they're best. Both, they're both banana boy number one in our hearts. Let me tell you, if I if I had that unexpected banana hashtag, man, they, they it is straight fire. Every every time I'm in their social media, I'm like, yo, they're getting lots and lots of people hashtagging unexpected banana, and it's all funny as hell. I crack up every single time. I'm flipping through Instagram. Anyway, it's hilarious. It's it's hilarious it's how many unexpected bananas are out there. You don't you don't <laughs> think about it. And then when you see it, you're like, yeah, I see a lot of bananas for no goddamn reason. <laughs> it's so it's so genius. Love those dudes. The best. All right. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about some movies. Let's talk about the theme this week. And um, would you mind? Giving the name of the theme and then we can just get into it. <laughs> of course, of course. And I also I have to say this is a, this is a moment momentary break to say when people write about our show, I'm always very thankful. But I can always tell when they don't listen to the episodes because they list the title as the theme. Yes. And guess what? That's not it. The theme is now. The theme is here. And this week's theme is Juliet Lewis is the 1990s foremost murderous girlfriend. <laughs> That's a theme, people. That's not a title. <laughs> That's right. That's a theme, baby. A theme. And look, we just had Scotty Landis on. I just want to point this out. Um, he wrote the movie Ma, and we talked about one of the actors in Ma, and that actor is the focus of our episode today, which is... A crazy coincidence, right? Just wanted to acknowledge that. Now, all of our listeners know by this point that you and I are roughly the same age. And we kind of grew up in the 90s. So we consider ourselves, what, Gen Xers? So I want to know, Juliette Lewis obviously is an actress. She's been around for ages. She's still working. Um, a lot of people know her from all her many, many, many amazing films and she was also like a musical artist and had a band at one point but i want to know your opinion about her in the 90s because i feel like there's a concentration of films that she was in in the 90s when we were growing up where she kind of was this actress that was doing kind of almost specific type of roles but definitely like cool movies quote-unquote cool movies for for our teenagers and above right Right. And she's she's had an impressive career. Like I I was looking through her bio and like, wow, she's been in movies with everyone and done everything and has been working since she was six. And, you know, she was she took that um, uh, the hiatus to focus on her band. But otherwise, she's been like 
or her band's called Juliet and the Licks, which I, th- I think is a great name. But she got like legally eman- emancipated when she was 14. Um, and yeah, her dad was an actor, too. He's, yeah. a, he's a very famous character actor, Jeffrey Lewis. So, yeah, it's so funny because I was reading I was reading about our two movies, as we, I always do. I like to read and, you know, just kind of bulk up on stuff, because honestly, I have not seen either of our movies since they came out Same. since nine, 1993 and 1994 respectively. Yep. And I could not tell you, I was having like such a rush of nostalgia, so many different types of feelings, but there was like this moment where I was reading about, you know, Oliver Stone. He's the director of one of the films we're going to talk about today. And he was basically like talking about why he cast, you know, who he cast in the movie that we're going to talk about today. And he said that he was kind of looking for like a white trash look, quote unquote. Like basically he was looking for somebody who would convey like a poor Southerner, you know. Right. And she fit the bill. And I just think that's so interesting because, I mean, I could talked about this in the Sissy Spacek episode, like Southerners a lot of times as actors, they're character actors because they get cast as people like this, right? It's right. like, oh, you're from Texas. You're from Georgia. You're from Kentucky. Why don't you play the like gun toting redneck guy that, you know, is trying to kill the two people, you know, right. the stars of the movie or whatever. Why? Are, and, but in her case, it's that thing where you're like, oh, she was like typecast as she's not from the South. As, no. as far as I know, she's from California, she's right? She's from I LA. Mean, yeah, she's an LA girl. Well, she's, this is the thing. Like she did so many of these movies because I think she could play to that stereotype. Yeah. But I don't know, looking back in hindsight, which is always easier to do, I don't know if that was a good move for her or if that was a move. I mean, it's it's definitely put her in the spotlight of some pretty intense and well-recognized films, which I guess as an actor, you always want, but I just don't, I'm still struggling now in 2021 to understand the urge to just like push her in that direction. And she could do it. She could and did do it quite a lot. Yeah. And also too, just the ebb and flow of interest when it comes to like these sort of class-based regional depictions right mm-hmm. so you're kind of like okay we have a many periods in our we, i mean we, we might have touched upon it a little bit um when we did the coal miner's daughter episode where it's like oh suddenly you have this proliferation of like all these country music films suddenly you have films that are all about like you know southern people southern stereotypes like red redneck culture um right and i and i just think that's so interesting cuz it was sort of like well then why suddenly were like we were obviously in the 90s you know silence of the lambs came mm-hmm. out in 1990 and it was a huge hit won oscars everybody was doing lots and lots of movies about murder about serial killers it was kind of in the era Coupled with the idea that you have this, like, I would call it maybe a counterculture of alternative music, mm-hmm. grunge was in the youth culture, f- movies about outsiders, movies about people that weren't pretty, you know, like people right. who were looked a little, quote unquote, trashy. They were, you know, smeared makeup, like torn baby doll dresses like that was kind of the aesthetic of grunge. And- This is also before that kind of early 2000s jump into that aesthetic with 
you know, Kid Rock and the trucker hats and the Von Dutch and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of like this this subsect or this stereotypical subsect of our culture has always been fetishized in popular culture. Both of these movies, I know exactly where I was when both these movies were happening. <laughs> That's very rare. I like forget tons of shit right now. Like I'm like, yo, I, I can barely remember college, but I remember exactly where I was. I remember where I was when I saw my movie because it was one of the first movies that I could drive myself to. Oh, my God. And again, this is this is a very 90s thing where nobody's checking IDs for R-rated or NC-17 or whatever movies. You just walked in. Yeah. I just oh walked God. in with my Cabbage Patch face and was like, I'm here to see this murder movie. And they were like, great. We don't give a fuck. Yeah. But this it is it is also like I love any moment to dig into the 90s because I am firmly Gen X and. I definitely remember the 90s is the time that was we at the time classified it as politically correct. But when you look back at this now, like hyper politically correct scenario that we live in, we were not politically correct at all compared to now because we were still using tropes like this as like kind of a scapegoat for talking about the ills of our society. So that wasn't cool, but nobody was talking about that yet. Yeah, I mean, I doubt that there was much intersectionality in the right. in the early 90s, at least from my perspective. I I didn't really know. Like, yeah, to, you're exactly right. It's like, oh, we're going to like package this this social commentary about violence and the media or violence and this. It, but like the rest of the movie is also like there's a lot going on. There's a lot. I'm excited to talk about these movies. You're going first this week. Yeah. And I'm bringing it to you. Are you ready, baby? (laughs) I'm ready. We are getting into a movie that I we can decide together whether or not it has aged well. But my film for this week's theme of Juliette Lewis is the 1990s foremost murderous girlfriend is Natural Born Killers, which was released in 1994 and directed by Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone's vision has changed the way we saw our past. Now, he takes a look at where we are and where we're going. And you'll be shocked at what he sees. So this is this is based on a story by Quentin Tarantino. The screenplay was written by David Velaz. This is uh, all right. My synopsis is going to be real synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) It's like real short. We've got two (laughs) in a row. (laughs) This film stars Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis as Mickey and Mallory Knox, who are separately two victims of different types of childhood abuse. And they meet. And then they go on a rampage and kill 52 people in three weeks, all while falling in love. And this movie is supposed to be Oliver Stone's condemnation of media and how we consume violence. Um, So that's kind of the setup. And the Juliette Lewis factor of this movie is very interesting to me because she is playing this kind of... um, Like she meets Mickey when she's a teenager and she's in this incredibly abusive household. Her dad uh, is played by Rodney Dangerfield, which is a very weird casting, very stunt casting. there. Yeah, it's crazy casting. Yeah, And he is a bastard. Um, But they meet when she's a teenager and then um, she's being abused by her father, which is it's told in the sitcom way, which is very disturbing. Um, 
And the first people that Mickey and Mallory kill are her parents. Uh, Mickey goes to jail for stealing her dad's car, but then he breaks this is I mean, the 90s. You're never going to hear the sentence again. He breaks out of jail by riding a horse into a tornado. (laughs) Seems legit. I love you, 1994. And then he goes to her house and they kill her parents and they start this life of crime. And it's like they just instantly become folk heroes. And people are, you know, these little soundbite things where people are saying it's the best thing to happen to murder since Charles Manson. And the way that the, that this film is is portrayed is very glitchy. Like there's always there's, the imagery is off the charts like you cannot look away for a second because you're going to miss something every blink of an eye they're showing different imagery whether it's you know um, animated or you know strong color charts and like glitchy you know quick flashes of demons it's just like it's got everything like oliver stone is just throwing it all out there (laughs) yeah it turns from like black and white to color very frequently it's very stylized very highly stylized it looks like an mtv music video basically completely and at the beginning of this this film in the opening scene the opening scene really tells you everything you need to know about Juliette Lewis in this movie about Mallory Knox Um, because she's kind of they're in this like you know rest stop uh, diner and out in the middle of nowhere and Mickey's reading a newspaper and on the front it basically says that Mickey and Mallory have killed six people at a slumber party. <laughs> like <laughs> a massacre? What? Was it a slumber party massacre? Maybe It was a slumber party massacre perhaps? Um <laughs> And then she's dancing to this, like she puts money in the jukebox and she's dancing and she's like so snake-like and writhing. And it's just like, she's just doing her thing. And this guy aggressively starts to flirt with her. So she pops him in the face with a bottle and kills him. And then they just start killing everyone in the restaurant. And that's how you start the the film. And then they're mm. like dancing to like La Vie on Rose and like, you know, they love each other so much. And it is bonkers so they kind of tell the story by going back in time and catching up with their their childhoods to where they are now um but it is it's bonkers it's bonkers robert downey jr i forgot plays a really important role in this film mm-hmm. and this is the 90s so this is like is this either i didn't look it up but this is either bef- right before or right after he was arrested for sleeping in someone's house like he was high and broke into someone's house and fell asleep yeah that's i don't know the exact date but that was him in the 90 in the early 90s especially like there there was like that was kind of like a big story yeah about him right if your only knowledge of robert downey jr is iron man you have got a lot of googling to do (laughs) exactly And he his role in this film is kind of funny. Like he plays the host of this show called American Maniacs, which I kind of wish existed. I know. I kept thinking there is a, a, char- a character in, in the background during one of the shoots, you know, that he's on that's wearing an American Maniacs T-shirt. And I'm like, can I have an American Maniacs T-shirt? <laughs> They had to have made that. They right? had to have made those like those are promo items or something for sure. Yeah. Was, so or there, so if somebody wild. has redone them, or if, if not, then we need to redo them. <laughs> we will redo them. We will re-release them as part of our merch. <laughs> uh, come at me, Oliver Stone. <laughs> and he does. He plays Wayne Gale, and and he's the host of this show. But he plays it with a weird, like, with an Australian accent. For literally no reason. <laughs> I know. And I kept thinking, 
thinking he wasn't did he have an australian accent in tropic thunder too i was like is that oh, his yeah. thing where he just likes speaking in an australian accent is that his accent but he's like you know what can... i'm good at it so i might as well do it in multiple films <laughs> why not Ah. <laughs> it's so bizarre and it's just like the whole movie is as we get into these characters and everyone that's in their orbit including uh this detective Scagnetti um Oof. who is I mean there's it's it's Oliver Stone so there's so many highly problematic people and characters and situations in this but Tom Sizemore plays detective Jack Scagnetti uh who watched his mother get murdered by a serial killer so that's why he hunts them but it's also why he is one because he murders a sex worker in a hotel room while he's wearing a disturbing string thong god that scene that, that scene, scene is, is wild 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 with a and capital again, w the 90s were so vigilant about certain things but nobody was talking about how stereotypically problematic it was to constantly show sex workers in this light um and he's just he doesn't really have a narrative beyond being obsessed with mickey and mallory and murder so he's yeah. part of that machine of like, you know, we're a country and a culture consumed with with violence. Um, but he's he's also part of the violence. And then we also have, huh, again, the things I forget about this movie because I hadn't seen it since 1994. Yeah, me too. Um, Tommy Lee Jones plays the warden. <laughs> I know we've already discussed him on this podcast. This is possibly his finest role. TLJ is incredible in this movie. I mean, he is a fucker. He's a prison warden. But like, that's the thing that I love. There was those scenes of him and Skagnetti. Every time I yeah. say Skagnetti, I think about um, Reservoir Dogs because I guess Tarantino likes the name Skagnetti and he's used it multiple times. Oh um, there's some kind of thing going on with with the Skagnetti on Skagnetti. Thing. So... Um, <laughs> But he, him, uh, TLJ's character and Scagnetti are walking through the prison and they're yes. both wearing, it almost looks like they look like fucking game show hosts from the 1960s. They've got these like suits on yes. with these ties. Their hair is like styled in these like pompadours. They just look very stylized. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, honestly, music videos from the 90s where they were taking like old 60s kind of stock character looks and making them rock and roll like that was the yes. thing. And that's kind of the way that they looked was those kind of like rock and roll 60s sleazeball guys. You know what I mean? And they were doing the, the Aaron Sorkin walk and talk before <laughs> Sorkin gave us the walk and talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it oh is, he is truly wonderful to watch in this film even though it's yeah. a very dis it's a disturbing film and i don't know again like it's it's hard to say and to look back on this with kind eyes because you know we're at a different time but juliet lewis is fascinating in this movie and i think part of what they're they're discussing here and part of what's interesting about her is that we, we were kind of in the 90s at a point where you didn't hear a lot about women murdering people um in in terms of our pop, pop culture Right. There were always right. the murderees and not the murderers. Um, so that was kind of one of the the driving, fascinating forces of this film was that she is also killing people. And when they have they, there's just so many scenes that showcase her bloodlust in a way that makes you think, well, 
she was really horribly abused for most of her life. And are they trying to say, basically, is Oliver Stone trying to say, this is what happens? Like, this is an extension of a different kind of violence? Is that, you know, when you have violence done upon you, you become violent? Um, but he he really teases that out in a lot of her her killings in particular, and even in Mickey's murders, um, where he, they flash back to him as a child and, you know, his abuse. But it's it's an interesting interplay here because she was really she's really primed to play this kind of character, because let me tell you that Juliette Lewis in this movie goes ape shit in every scene. Like when she goes ape shit, she really goes all the way up. Yeah. Oh, my God. Totally. Totally. Like all the way up. And it is fascinating to watch. And you kind of I think I kind of forgot that she's a good actress because she was stereotyped and playing these roles so much that I thought like, well, that's just, you know, it's just what she does and who she is. But it's not. <laughs> it's yeah. not like she's really good at playing that that archetype. Oh, man. She I mean, like there are so many scenes where she is so physical when she's doing the thing. Like, it's not just like this isn't just like um, we're going to get some like really crazy camera angles to make it look like she's punching a guy. She looks like she's fucking punching a guy. Like she's like, yeah. she is like her body is all over the frame. Like she's really physical uh, and is using her arms and legs like very wildly. And she's just got a lot of that uh, in this movie. It's crazy. And I, and you do, I'm with you. Like you forget, like she's a great actress, man. Like she really knows what she's doing. Obviously she grew up in the business and she had, you know, obviously a lot of probably a lot of observation, a lot of practice doing right. it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I wouldn't cast her aside as being like, oh, she's just like, you know, Mallory. She's just part of this like, you know, lover on the lovers on mm -hmm. the run duo. Uh, she's got her own thing going on and her own story, which is, you know, like you said, it's very interesting. And that story includes this straight up jumping on people's backs. And just yeah. like ripping their eyes out. <laughs> she is truly very, it's it's physical in a way that now we see that kind of physicality with women in action films and in violent roles where it's very well choreographed. And you kind yeah. of see like, like I'm thinking of like Charlize Theron in um, Atomic Blonde or like, you know, you kind of get those stylized violence. Hers is the kind of violence that makes you think, oh, that would be me if I popped off. Yeah. Yeah. There's no core. There's not it's not choreographed. It's very like this is naturally somebody who's fucking pissed off and wants to, you know, wring your neck or whatever. Completely. And there's yeah. the thing that the scene that I think about in this movie the most or that I've remembered over the years the most is they this is not really a spoiler because the movie continues after this point, but they do get arrested. And I got to say the their arrest is absolutely hilarious when they, they get bitten by rattlesnakes after <laughs> Oliver Stone has an incredible history of problematically using indigenous imagery in his films and indigenous people in his films. Um, so they get bitten by rattlesnakes outside of, uh, you know, this this um, Native American man's home and they just wander into this drugstore to look for like the antidote, the venom or whatever yeah. antidote and they're just... <laughs> dragging themselves around this empty pharmacy and yeah. that that scene was very funny um they do get arrested and there's this scene in prison where Juliet lewis is by herself in her cell and you know tommy lee jones and tom sizemore these characters go up to her 
her cell and peek in and she, you can hear her singing before you hit the cell. And she's singing that song Born Bad. But she's doing it all acapella and just like all on her own. And she has this great voice. And it's just so it's very evocative. That scene was very evocative. And then she yeah. runs at the door and slams her head into it. Yeah. <laughs> like it is so over the top bonkers. But I thought in that scene that she was really telegraphing something very interesting. Oh, my God. I got to tell you. So here's what I remember from watching it in 1994. I remember Sweet Jane by the Cowboy Junkies being played multiple times yes. in the movie, which is pretty much like the first time I'd heard the song. And then, of course, now I just love it so much. Still to this day, I love that song. Same. But it reminds me the most of just that. That's the song that plays when they're together, right? They're in mm-hmm. love. And um, so there's that. I remember that. I remember the parts of them driving the car um, which isn't even on a road. It's like in front of like, you know, rear projection, basically, because that's the thing that's so crazy about this film ultimately is that it is. I think this is what happens a lot of times when people want to talk and think about controversial movies and like, you know, you could go on the Internet and this is definitely one of the most controversial movies that have ever been made. I mean, people mm-hmm. talk about it a lot. I don't even want to attempt. We'd have to make like 20 episodes about this movie to to really properly get into the weeds of it. For real. Um, but it's that thing where like a lot of times the the excuse is, well, it's highly stylized. So it's a satire. Like we're we're taking right. the, the we're taking the nut meat. I'm saying nut meat. Um, <laughs> we're taking you know the foundational <laughs> i want to say nut meat <laughs> i want to say I'm nut s- meat i'm still on nut meat i can't <laughs> i don't want to use nut meat that's just we're the thing that it. i use we're the using nut, it the nut meat <laughs> um, but what they do is that they're saying oh well here's the like foundational message of the film but we're going to make it in this way that's very artistic and very, you know, very highly stylized. Um, And it's now a satire. It's something that like, so you can remove the sort of, uh, I guess the initial shock um, of the subject material and you can kind of, it's being packaged in this very, very pretty wrapping and bow. Right. Yeah. And it's hard because this movie is so hard core like this movie is so hardcore it's been banned and like it is so ridiculously violent at the time i did not have really a sense of what they were saying politically i certainly didn't know oliver stone politically at all right um but i definitely was freaked out by it i was completely freaked out by the movie i remember the cowboy junkies i remember the artifice of it and just about how it was just kind of an overload of my senses. And I was freaked out. And then I never watched it again. Never watched it again. You know, until until now. (laughs) Same. And I think that they really, they rested on the satire of it and the imagery of it compounded by all their metaphorical moves to kind of make it like, no, this movie is cool. It's accessible because they kept doing these things. Like there's this one scene in the prison where they, literally exchange a gun for a camera and then kill the media you know right. like it's like they're doing all of these big moves to like shoot the camera and and the camera is a weapon on its own and like they're doing all these big moves to make this stuff accessible and 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 it just it didn't make me want to ever watch it again yeah and you know what i gotta tell you from 2021's eyes like i'm going to me 
the movie is so over the top that I'm just like, I roll. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like it's a it's a great movie in the sense that it really did create a stir. Like it really did force people to like kind of go, God, this movie is crazy and we must watch it and form an opinion on it. And, you know, it was something that ultimately I think Woody Harrelson and Juliet Lewis should be proud of because they acted their fucking asses off in this movie. And as a movie visually, it's so insane. I mean, they must have spent like so long editing it. I think they actually did, but I just can't even fathom how long, you know? It's so saturated. And this is also something to keep in mind, too, is that this is Woody Harrelson basically went from Cheers, where he was playing the kind of lovable dumb guy to this. Like he was making like big moves in his career by making this film. Yeah. And I got to tell you, when you put this movie up next to my movie and you think about the male leads who are essentially the same person, like, you know, these are the character type is exactly the same. Right. Male serial killers who are poor and southern essentially i think woody's pulling it off like in a in a way that i don't think the character in my movie is pulling off as well well because he has like a subtle sleekness about him that he he isn't he doesn't say a lot and he doesn't overdo it in that way because he's not he's just not someone or this character isn't someone who is evocative in that way he kind of lets his violence do the speaking for him Right. And there's just so much energy in the rest of the film. There's just so much kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it is kind of like there's too much going on and I can't really process it. But so it's good that his his vibe seems to be a little less cartoonish and over the top. I mean, certainly he does have crazy moments, but it's not like his performance is not. Yeah. It's certainly not her performance. Like Juliet Lewis's performance is way different, but I think it serves her character more than it did for him. You know what I mean? Completely. But you're right. They're both acting their asses off in this film. And it is like I. Yeah, I really I picked this for her film, even though there were other options, (laughs) because like we've discussed, she played this stereotypical kind of character in a lot of films. But I picked this one because it's the one that to me had you got the most of her energy and the most of her. kind of physicality and the most of her like her her acting ability in this came through to me the loudest yeah i mean i i think that like i said when you put my movie and your movie together i think there's a definite shift in things and i'm really glad you picked it though because holy shit i like i said i needed to see this movie again because i like i say this all the time like you got to see movies again you can't just watch a movie when you're 14 15 years old and then never see it again you gotta revisit it and see what you think of it and there is a huge difference in just sort of what's going on in the film and how i view the film I thought about it more. Honestly, I really did. I did, too. And I thought about that the way that we tend to make folk heroes out of people now and how heightened that has become with the Internet and how we tend to, you know, give the celebrity treatment to people so much more than we used to. And some of these people who have done horrible things and who are terrible people at heart. And it is it's yeah, it's it's was definitely useful to watch again as a 43 year old, um, because I don't think I would have just voluntarily just sat down on Sunday and watched it, you know, (laughs) like it needed to be in this context. And I'm glad that I glad that I did. Yeah, me too. Um, well, my movie for the theme of Juliet Lewis is the 1990s foremost murderous girlfriend. 
is a movie from 1993. It's called California, with a K, directed by Dominic Senna. Looking for somebody to take turns at the wheel and share expenses on a week-long cross-country blue highways tour of historic murder sites? Brian, who in the right mind is going to want to do that? Early. Tell me more about California. Okay, so I don't, uh, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I, I honestly don't. I have so many feelings about this movie right now. I'm, I truly might virtual cornholio off this chair. Like, I just... <laughs> She's she's levitating, folks. I, I am like <laughs> so. I just i I need to give a little bit of like where I was when I first saw. It. So I when this movie came out, I was a freshman in high school, and I remember I didn't see it the weekend it came out or anything. I saw it like later when it was on VHS, so probably like the year after, right? Right. <laughs> I was at a party, and I was at this girl's house whom like we weren't really friend friends. Like she was way cooler than me. You know what I mean? Like she she dated a skater guy and she did LSD like almost every day. Like she was like, (laughs) like she was literally like the most psychedelic person in our high school. But, you know, at the time, like when I was in high school, I was kind of a stoner. So, you know, we all just kind of all hung out in a loose, very loose group of like (laughs) high school idiots. Right. Um, and I remember I was at this party and somebody put this movie on and I, and I was watching it with like one eye because honestly I was really paying attention to like, so I, I was, I went to the party with one of my really good friends who was like, she was like cavorting with like some girl in the corner of the party. And I kept thinking, man, she's going to ditch me and I'm not going to have a ride home when I want one. Uh, and this is going to be a lesson to me for the rest of my fucking life, which is that I'll see you there. I'm going to drive myself because I'm not riding with somebody who might go off uh, and, you know, bang somebody. I got, oh, I'm God. driving myself. You know what I mean? 100% the move always. Uh, even now, <laughs> in my mid-40s, I'm like, I will get there on my own. I don't trust anyone. Our childhoods were designed to make us not trust people. It's really I weird. I know. It's like, but that's the thing where it's like, if I'm going to a party, I leave when I want. And no one's going to no one's going to make me stay somewhere that I don't want to stay because we're watching California right now. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't really know what else is going on other than I'm about to not have a ride. <laughs> um, but, you know, what's funny is that this movie was made in Georgia, like a, like a lot of it was made in Georgia. And there's a scene where they're driving through downtown Atlanta and you can see the Omni in the background, which is where I saw Christian Leitner. Oh, my goodness the lines connecting (laughs) go through georgia (laughs) that's right um so the director of this film is dominic senna um and he directed like kind of just a handful of feature films because he was primarily a music video director and i don't know if you know this this was certainly news to me but he directed like one of my favorite music videos of all time and it's basically this video that's been like a style and mood board for me my entire life which is the pleasure principle by janet (gasps) jackson the one where she's in the warehouse and she directed that yeah he directed that video so i was like huh okay like, I love that video so much. I got to wear knee pads over jeans all the time. That was such a look. That and Rhythm Nation 1814. Yeah. 
Yeah, this was Bring when Janet home. had that like shag haircut thing with like the yes. long bangs. <gasps> Man, it's so great. But remember the fact that he made music videos in just a moment. I'm going to get back to that point. But he made two, at least two other movies that I think our listeners would recognize. So he made the remake of Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie. And Swordfish... Starring Halle Berry. I think we all remember Swordfish, maybe. At least you remember the name, right? And the memes. Like, yeah, and the memes. <laughs> um, so let's get to California, okay? Because basically you can say that this movie is like a two-hour music video, right? Yeah. It's like a two-hour music video of hot people and crimes. And um, it's so interesting that we picked the movies that we picked for this week because I think they are both like this. They're both like highly stylized music video-esque movies about serial slash mass murderers, mm -hmm. one of whom is Juliet Lewis. <laughs> they're both, I mean, they're essentially the same movie if you want to get down to brass tacks and in so many ways. There's a couple of different moving parts, but they're kind of the same. Kind of the same. But... If you want to get down to it, this movie does look great. I mean, despite the fact that there's just like nasty stuff happening in it, like everyone is sweating and covered in dirt. And I think at one point, Brad Pitt calls someone, some random lady. He calls her a stanky bitch. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Where did that come from? <laughs> it's just Brad Pitt is nasty in this movie in so many ways. He's gross in this movie. Oh, my God. And like. Yeah, and to to my eyes now, I mean, obviously, this movie looks super dated, I gotta say. Yeah. Like, it looks like a Stone Temple Pilots video or something. <laughs> it's, like, so insane. But, you know, like, you, you know, I mean, you know this, a lot of former music video directors were starting to make feature-length films in the 90s. Absolutely. I mean, do you remember... Do you remember that series that Palm Pictures put out? It was called The Director's Label, and it was, like, these DVDs of, like, all of the... Uh, music videos from like Spike Jones and, oh, yeah. and like Michelle Gondry and like all these kind of like they were already doing films, but they had this it was just collection of all of their um, their music video work. Right. I think it came out in the early 2000s. But anyway, I miss those DVDs. I, I they were they were really great. Crucial. I, I loved those DVDs. I loved those. And I also when I was in high school, um, this is the weirdest memory that I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> going to convey i had a poster i it was when clinton and gore were running the first time so mm -hmm. i had like a clinton gore poster on my wall and then after they won i used it it was right when mtv started adding the directors to mu to music videos oh i remember that yeah yeah yeah. because for years they didn't and then all of a sudden one day directors of mu music videos popped up so i would write them on this poster and I made like a Venn diagram, like one of those weird spider things of like me Michelle Gondry directed this and this and this. And I just kept a list. I wish I still had that poster, but it was just like a weird Clinton Gore background to this list of directors <laughs> I was tracking for no reason. I no reason. It. No. it was just like fascinating to me. That's my type. I love people <laughs> who are like cataloging you know, things as children, like cataloging favorite films or directors or music videos. Yeah, there was a lot. I think they did one on like Mark Romanek and yeah. um, I can't remember. There were so many others. I think there was a Hype Williams one or there was supposed to have been a Hype Williams one. Anton um, Cor Corbage. Corbin. Never, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't yeah. say his last name. Corbin. Definitely. Anton Corbin. Um, so, OK. So California, this film stars. A quad 
right? Uh, There's like four people. Uh, I include like most everybody, including me, remembers this movie for our murderous girlfriend, Juliette Lewis and Brad Pitt. Right yes. now, this is the beginning of the high Brad Pitt era. Right. Right. And they Juliette Lewis and Brad Pitt were actually dating when they filmed this movie. And P.S. They met on a TV movie called Too Young to Die when she was 16 and he was 26. And she she was legally emancipated when she was 14. And it didn't seem like it was a destructive relationship. And but it's still should be known that that was what was happening. And that movie, too, is also about like, isn't that movie about kind of like lovers on the run or some kind of scenario where they were like criminals in love or something like that? I feel I like remember. or maybe he just plays like a she's she's doing crimes and he's like a shitty boyfriend i don't remember <laughs> i actually meant to watch it um when we were doing this episode because i've i've never seen it and i think it's like i think it's probably on a, a youtube channel yeah. a couple of different parts i gotta i gotta find it but um it's weird because they've, from what i understand they basically like are the same characters in that tv movie as they are here and they right. were it's very strange but they were they were dating and they dated for four years. And I think they broke up after this movie, not directly yeah. after, but they broke up in 1993 and this movie came out in 1993. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is, is that I've, I've read that the director, like Dominic Seta, apparently didn't even know that they were dating when he cast them, which I think it, it seems impossible now. But, How you know, do you the, not know that? <laughs> we're in a pre-internet world. I don't know. Maybe like no one knew. You well, know? Also, Brad Pitt was not hyper famous at this point. Absolutely. Yep. So this is also like a strange kind of like when I was talking about um, Woody Harrelson and Natural Born Killers. This was a real turn for Brad Pitt, where he kind of burst onto the scene as like the young, sexy heartthrob in Thelma and Louise. And that was his big entree into film. And I think he's always struck me as someone who's like wanted to scratch the surface more and attain more depth. So he instantly pivoted. He's like, I'm, I'll show you my chest, but I'm going to be a dirtbag. Like, I will not just rest <laughs> on these hot laurels. I mean, listen. In 1993, you, you absolutely had to have Brad Pitt digging a hole shirtless, okay? And then he climbs out of the hole with fucking no clothes on, and we see his ass cheeks in the distance. I'm like, he's buck naked. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's, I love it. uh, dare I say he was a little bit of a himbo in his early days, and you know what? <laughs> I don't know. Like, good for you, dude. I certainly wasn't able to, like, be some, like, hottie hottie, like, digging a hole covered in, in like, mud, and, like, maybe there was some kind of, like, <laughs> maybe there was some kind of sewage treatment shit going on there too who knows this movie is gross there's a lot of scenes where brad pitt is hot but disgusting he's like picking his feet at the dinner table through some holy socks yes i mean that's what i'm like wow can people be hot enough like sometimes people are so hot that you don't give a shit that they're like they've got like indigestion and they're like picking like crap out of the middle of their feet what is that like <laughs> and it, it is fascinating because he kind of this is part of the 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 digging into the southern stereotype and what's interesting is he, i think his family is like from the ozarks or something right i i don't know where exactly but i think that he, like i've heard an interview with him where he was talking about how he's from that region from the ozarks so he's eschewing his hotness to play a stereotype of something he might have been familiar with yeah and just also like 
to dare to dare to do it to be like let's take the most like the hottest young sensation and just make him disgusting uh, and mean he's so cruel and like so mean nasty and yeah it's very nasty in every way right um but hot baby um he looks kind of like a hemsworth in this movie right he he's does. got he's, oh he's, <laughs> he's like a hemsworth in a trucker hat very weird brad pitt was the proto hemsworth it's true it's true i mean and listen let me just tell you before we go too far down the brad pitt road i completely forgot that david duchovny is also in this film and he's maybe even the star of the film considering that he like narrates the entire film which by so the way annoying. i hated it yes it thank was you. so I'm annoying <laughs> from the first minute i'm like oh i can't do this we can't we can't go down this road with you this whole fucking movie duchovny dude like sometimes listen there's there's moments where i like narration there a lot of times though i think it's a cop-out like i'm like don't explain what's about to happen i don't want to learn about this you know like why are you telling me about i don't know to me i'm like i get it because he's a writer and maybe that was how they were trying to do it but i was like this is annoying i don't want this guy to talk and from his perspective like his was not the most interesting perspective to have on this journey that they were on and that's why it was also annoying i'm like i would jump out of the car i would have rolled out of that car if i had heard him talking when he's he's also talking into one of those like handheld recorders yes because you haven't given the synopsis of the film yet but the basic premise is that like they're on the road together right like they're all on the road because david duchovny wants to go to these murder spots and research them for a book and his photographer girlfriend's going to go with him and take photos and they're going to get a couple of people to join them to help take care take up some of the expenses and the people they get are brad pitt and julia lewis right exactly he's like narrating every murder spot as they're stopping and i would have just run into a field at the first stop once i heard him doing that like it was so annoying so annoying and i i'm this is controversial but i'm just gonna say it i don't mean any disrespect to you mr duchovny sir but you are always going to be Fox Mulder. I don't care what movie you're in. Like, I have tried. I have tried so. I've seen probably like 80% of your films and television work. You are Fox Mulder from you the You were too X-Files. good. You were too good as Fox Mulder. Too good. I don't care how many earrings you put in. I don't care. <laughs> like, you're Fox goddamn Mulder. Yeah, even when you were in fucking Zoolander, like trying to be like, you are Fox Mulder. I'm sorry. I can't. I I wish I wish it were different, but for me, for me, it's not. I can't help it. Um, oh shit! Okay, so the premise of the movie, like you said, is that the Fox Mulder. I mean, David Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh shit! Oh, just just um, proves the point. Just proves the point, people. Yes, exactly. But he's a PhD student, and he's studying serial killers, murder. He's a writer. His girlfriend is played by the impossibly attractive Michelle Forbes. Okay. And her character is like this provocative photographer. She takes pictures of like priests getting blowjobs and that kind of stuff. It's very, uh, it was apparently based on like a real artist of the time, but you know, it's like, she's taking sexy, provocative photography and she's, and she's helping him out. Basically. She wants to take the photography for this murder house book that he wants to write. Okay. You have this setup, right, where there's like two sets of couples. And really, when it comes down to it, it's like a city couple and a country couple. And I think you already know who is who. 
Let's just get serious. I mean, you know that David Duchovny and Michelle Forbes, okay, are the city couple. And the country couple is Brad Pitt and Juliet Lewis, which Juliet, okay. Um, I don't even know what to say about her because unlike the movie that you've just talked about, where she seemed to have some agency, like she was actually yeah. killing people and kicking people's ass. She is not doing that in this movie. Right? No, she's very passive. Her, like her character's name, Adele. Brad Pitt's character is named Early. And Early is the killer. She actually does not murder anybody in this movie, I believe. So it right. would be kind of false to call her a murderous girlfriend. Maybe more like a murderer's girlfriend in California. But uh, I'm going to push back a little bit and say that she... She is still, to me, a murderous girlfriend in this movie because she knows what he's doing and just tries to block it out. Yeah, I, there is a moment where you do wonder. I think she is turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. But then in this movie, too, she's got a lot of childhood trauma. She talks about it. She was, you know, a, a raped at a very early age. And she talks about because there's a, a scene where her and the Michelle Forbes character are in the hotel and they're just kind of like doing girly stuff, like painting each other's nails. Um, while David Duchovny and Brad Pitt are like out at a re- really weird biker goth industrial bar. So I don't know where this bar that is insane. bar. <laughs> I could not understand what that clientele was for the life <laughs> of me. You have a black guy with like no hair except for the ponytail and their long, long, long braids hanging down the back, but also wearing leather. And then like, it was just the strangest clientele for like what is supposed to be a deep Southern kind of situation. Yeah. I I had no idea where they were at. I was basically like, this looks like a strip club, but it's also a biker bar. Everybody in here is wearing like Betsy Johnson dresses. I don't understand what's happening. Um, But as they're, as uh, Michelle Forbes's character and Juliet Lewis's character are back in the hotel, you know, Juliet Lewis kind of reveals her, herself which is that basically she's trauma bonded with early because she's had such a terrible childhood she does you know obviously has experienced like massive horrible aggression from men and now she's with him and i think there's a Mm -hmm. moment where she believes that you know he's a good guy she even says that that he's a good guy and he makes her feel safe right but it's like because the aggression is happening outside of their relationship even though she does say to her, to Michelle Forbes' character that he does beat up on her and doesn't want her to smoke and doesn't want her to drink and do things. So it's very problematic. It's very like, wow, like, OK, uh, you know, and you can tell because here's the thing I got to say right now at this very moment. I like to state for the record that Michelle Forbes' character is the best part of this movie. She's the only one with any common sense. She's not only like literally one of the hottest women ever. With her swing out sister haircut. <laughs> Not <laughs> the breakout haircut. <laughs> Looking like a background dancer on Club MTV with downtown Julie Brown. Do you, did I even tell you that like a couple years ago I listened to Breakout like every day for three months? <laughs> that song is still great. It's still great. Ch- challenge me if you don't think it's great. Um, <laughs> but she is like hot in a way that I was like enamored I would have like if I saw a girl like this, like just out in the world when I was a teenager, I would have been like, I want to be her. She looks like a downtown kind of New York artist type. OK, but which is like it begs the question, ultimately, why is she dating this like Ph.D. student? Like, right. you, girl, you're too hot for Kentucky. 
You need to get you need to move to New York and go to the limelight or some shit like you don't need to be here with David Duchovny. And honestly, she is the smartest in this movie because she's the first person to be like, yo, ditch these people. They are nuts. Why did you ask him to share a a car? Yeah. Like get get rid of them. And, you know, of course, like David Duchovny is like becoming more and more enchanted by early. He doesn't get it. So he doesn't listen to her. Which pisses me off, but Completely. to me, I, like I like I see her as she like she's basically the hero of the movie, in my opinion. She's got this yes. kind of slightly butch quality to her, you know. She's she's very uh, she knows exactly what's going on at all times. She has physical and like kind of emotional power in the movie. She's not, you know, obviously not the Juliet Lewis character who has like no agency whatsoever. And she's smoking cigarettes and she's wearing all black. And she's that's just so cool. And I'm like, yes, she is the best character in this movie. I don't know why everybody focuses on Brad Pitt because <laughs> she's right there, guys. She's the best. Um, but of course, you know, this is all like she can come in and protest all she wants to. It's too late because they're on the road. Early kills a guy in a bathroom and he's basically covered in like colostomy bag, toilet water you know <laughs> tinted with blood for the rest of the trip like he's just splattered with blood in the car for the rest of the trip yeah he he literally kills a guy in like a gas station bathroom who i believe was emptying his colostomy bag and there's like blood f- and the bag and the toilet overflowing and then he just gets back in the car like what's up y'all ready like <laughs> <laughs> like and also there's a moment where him and Adele have sex in their car yes. while they're going off and looking at the murder house. I'm like, yo, this guy really sucks. Like he's getting in this car and is making it stanky. Speaking of stanky, <laughs> like multiple who's, times. Who's the real stanky bitch in this yeah. scenario? Brad it's Pitt's the stanky grace. bitch. Thank you. But, you know, the this is the premise. The premise is that you've got two people from the city. Obviously, they're both in the murder business in their own way. Like, as a photographer, she's dealing with very provocative subjects. He's obviously fascinated with murder. And, like, that's, you know, the crux of his studies and his profession. And so this movie is like a commentary. Uh, It's a very obvious commentary, honestly, about the relationship between people who are fascinated or curious about, like, the dark side of life and people who actually are the dark side of life, like murderers. Right. 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 And it's it's, that is, again, like another thing that I think people were really thinking about in this era. It's why Juliette Lewis came to this movie again. I mean, this was obviously made before Natural Born Killers, but she was, you know, she's obviously playing a character where she's, again, playing this poor Southern woman who is in a relationship with a very violent man, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're both kind of like hot, gross violent people just like your movie and they're both in both instances she's escaping violence by running towards more violence right there was just a real a real fascination that the 90s had with modern outlaws and it just Mm -hmm. doesn't hold up for me yeah not in a bad way like i enjoyed watching these movies there are two hysterical points of this film though that I'd be, I'd be remiss not to mention because you know me, I'm always looking for the for the humor. <laughs> At one point, David Duchovny is driving a truck through the desert, and he just crashes it, like it just flips over. And I'm like, what? 
what is happening? We just watched this man drive 5,000 miles and now he can't drive down a straight road. And then he just hangs out in the car overnight, all busted up in a truck that he flipped for over nothing. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It's that awesome. Is, it's awesome. And then there's another point where uh, Brad Pitt and Juliette Lewis are living in a trailer. And um, also, I got to say, there's too much teeth being brushed in this film for me. I forgot about that, but that's probably the main reason I haven't ever seen it again. Because someone's brushing their goddamn teeth every 10 seconds in this fucking movie. <laughs> so he's like outside brushing his teeth and she comes out and kind of is hanging out of the, tr- the door of the trailer and she puts, she pulls her shirt down and he just goes, put your titty back up, Adele. <laughs> yeah. God. Stomach turning. I was like, come on. Like that's just too, put it's just your too, titty too much. back up. <laughs> Oh my god. I can't. But yeah, this is it's fascinating and weird and the we, we had a very very weird outlook on outlaws in the 90s and Juliette Lewis was at the forefront of all of it. She just happened to be the actress to be in all these films. Like and you're right about Drew Barrymore. She's probably another type that was in a lot of these movies. These were women who were like really really popular in the 90s and they were like major movie stars. You know, I think with you were right about Juliette Lewis being kind of typecast in a very specific way. When it comes down to it, like, man, like having to watch both of these movies after not seeing them for what, almost 30 years? Yeah. I was like, man, they they were on one in the in the early to mid 90s. They were fucking on one. And wow, I don't even know what to say. I don't know how how we turned out like this. <laughs> how was this? I mean, the ultimate commentary that they were trying to make in the 90s is us. Like, we watched all of this shit and turned out just fine. <laughs> and everything was real great. And everything no, and was rosy. It all t- it went back to normal. We're, we live in a totally violent free society. Completely, y'all. No, no bad things happened. It definitely didn't get worse. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, I have to say again, like Juliet, we salute you. We're big fans. Um, we love what you did. We love your career. You know, you you were kind of the queen of this yeah. of this era. One of definitely one of the queens, if not the queen, and that is quite a feat. Absolutely agree. So, you want to tell us the movies for next week? Oh, do I? I have never wanted to do anything more. <laughs> so, the movies for next week are. The Shining from 1980 and A Place in the Sun from 1951. What a double feature. Well, I guess we'll see everybody next week. Thanks again, Danielle, for going back in time with me once again. It is my absolute favorite thing in the world. I love talking about us as teenagers. It literally is. I know we would have been such good friends. Let's make that happen. Let's go into an uh, Oliver Stone-esque alternate universe where we were friends in high school i would never leave you at a party let's just say that thank you thank you i i really do appreciate that i'm still driving though i'm still driving (laughs) bye everybody bye This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. 
email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 